Now, if you'll open up, we're actually going to start today in 2 Chronicles 6. 2 Chronicles 6. It's good to be back to a somewhat normal Sunday. We've had an amazing couple of weeks. The last three weeks, uh, three weeks ago, we had our mission and vision and financial update, along with finishing off the book of 2 Peter. And I've heard from many of you that you're excited about what we're doing and excited about the vision. Uh, and, and you've even proven that, honestly, with uh, your, your uh, resources. Um, tithe and offering has gone up, and that's been amazing. And I celebrate that with you guys, and I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do. Um, And then two weeks ago, we had Freedom Sunday, where we not only opened our eyes to the problem of slavery and human trafficking, but I went into that Sunday setting a goal in my mind that if we had five individuals or five households uh, that would become Freedom Partners, um, that I would be extremely excited. And uh, so, you know, I kind of tried to hedge the bet a little bit, and my family jumped in there. I was like, all right, four more. If we can get four more. We had 27 of your households, 27, sign up to be Freedom Partners. That's amazing. And on top of that, I forgot to tell you that because they have a donor uh, that is uh, willing to step in and and work with them, every Freedom Partners gift uh, is literally doubled for the entire year because you signed up on Freedom Sunday. And so what the Lord has done through his generosity to you and your willingness to be used on his behalf to fight against slavery and human trafficking is truly an amazing, amazing thing. And then last week, we had our largest Sunday ever as a church. Uh, Many of you co-labored together to take the gospel to Western Oregon University. Uh, We had uh, basically 300 people show up uh, to love Jesus and, and hear the gospel and uh, to love the, the incoming freshmen. Some of you might even be here today and, and their families. And so we are just super excited about what the Lord is doing. Um, and then on top of that, we get a roof of church in Burkina Faso. How awesome is that, right? And that's all stuff you guys are part of. That's what you are doing. And I am so thankful and I celebrate with you the work that God is doing. Now, with that, we have more work to do, Right? We never stop. We keep on going. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate that, but we're going to keep on moving in Isaiah and seeing what the Lord will teach the Church of Mission Fellowship. So get your notebooks out, get your pens ready, and we're going to go through a lot today. Okay? What I want to share with you first is this. I want to share with you the key to understanding the prophets. When we read the books known as the prophets, okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some of the uh, on down through you know, Jonah and on down through Malachi, what we're dealing with is a very particular type of book. Uh, it's written in, a, in a, a, a single way, and we have to understand it by knowing a, a certain key. And here's the key. You can write this down. A prophet is one chosen by God to do two things. First, they're chosen by God to foretell. And secondly, they're chosen by God to foretell. Okay, now let me explain what those mean. To foretell is to accurately predict future events. Now, in America, we love that part, right? We are a prophecy-crazy driven society. We want to know. We want to be in the know. That's why all of us are on Instagram and Twitter and pretend that we're friends with stars on Instagram and Twitter is because we want to be in the know. We want to know what's going on, right? So we are a big-time prophecy society, all right? But the other thing, and uh, what I would submit to you, the more important thing that the prophets were to do was to foretell. To foretell is to publicly speak God's truth. When the New Testament talks about the word to to speak prophecy, it's to foretell. It's to publicly speak God's truth. That's why many pastors, myself included, will stand up here and say, I'm acting in a role of prophecy today, not because I'm telling the future, 
okay? But because I'm forth telling, I'm publicly speaking the truth of God. And when you publicly speak the truth of God, you're acting in a prophetic role in the New Testament sense, okay? Now, within these, we have to understand a couple more, more pieces, because this will lay out for, for us for the rest of the year um, how uh, Isaiah goes. The first thing we see is that one of the things that the prophets will foretell is near events, events that are very close to them within their lifetime, okay? What that did, and the whole reason behind it, was because God wanted to give authority not to their prophecy of foretelling future events, but to their foretelling. All right? Somebody shows up at a party and they're like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen for the next five minutes. And they lay, and lay everything out. You're going to go, I'm listening. And then they can say whatever they want, right? Well, that's what the prophets would do. They would foretell the near events, which eventually gave authority to their foretelling. Eventually, the, the, the kings would say, wait a minute, this guy knows what they're talking about. All right? But then they also spoke about far events, events far into the future. And the reason for these is because they gave hope to God's true people. This is talking about things like the new Jerusalem, when we will beat our our swords into plows, and we will lay down with a lion, and we will walk in peace, and things will be restored. The purpose for that, because a lot of it hasn't even happened yet, wasn't to give them authority. It was to help those that were truly God's people know that even those things seem dark and terrible and broken and that there was tribulation, that they could trust that God had a plan and that he was bringing that plan to bear over the course of human history. So that's the foretelling piece, okay? Next, we have foretelling to publicly speak God's truth. The first thing they would do when they would foretell is they would compare the action of God's people to the covenant they had made with their God. It spoke of their loyalty to that God and that God alone. When you look at the Old Testament and you see men like Abraham, he would go into a place where everyone else was worshiping a God. And he would build an altar to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the God that we serve, that came down as Jesus Christ. He would build an altar to say, I am loyal to this God and this God alone. And his life was to be built in a way that showed he was loyal to that God. In our day, it's hard for us to imagine this because we don't think of idolatry in the same way. We don't put stone objects up on our altar and worship them unless we have a cultural background that says to do that. Okay, Maybe we're from the Far East or Hinduism or Buddhism. We have gods like sexuality, Ashtaroth. Gods like greed, money, mammon. And while we don't have stone idols that we worship, we worship them by our actions because we put our desires about sexuality, about greed, about things that aren't of God above God, and we choose to be loyal to ourselves rather than the God that we serve. So the prophets would come and they would foretell to publicly speak God's truth to compare the action of the people to the covenant they had made with God. Secondly, they would compare the action of the people to the law. They would go back and they would say, wait a minute, is what we're doing as a group of people that are God's chosen people, is it close to or acting upon the law that God gave us? And as we've talked many times before, even a couple of weeks ago, God's people were to be a people of justice, okay? Being God's people wasn't just being in the in crowd. 
And getting to go to the good place when you die, it was to be a people that were in a covenant with God to carry out his law of justice. Not the justice we think of in Western culture, but justice in things like caring for the widows and the fatherless, restoring things that are broken. And then the third thing they would do under foretelling is once they would compare those things, they would look at the society, they'd say, wait a minute, we got a problem here, guys. We're not acting upon the covenant or the law. They would profess a ruling. We call it a judgment to the people. Okay? Uh, one of the college guys, uh, what was it you said, Ben, in young adults? Uh, we done wrong. We done bad. We done messed up. Okay? There's a good ruling, all right? We done messed up. That's kind of the whole book of Isaiah in a nutshell. We done messed up, all right? And so they would pronounce this ruling. So everything that we are going to go through in Isaiah, and the reason I'm going into this in depth is because now I can speak in shorthand in a lot of what we go through in Isaiah. I can reference back to this and say, this is what they're doing or what Isaiah is doing in this, this section of Isaiah, okay? Now, we think of the foretelling, the, the, the covenant and the law, You can think of it in New Testament terms of what Jesus said when he said this. Uh, He said, love God, that's the covenant, and partner with him to do what? Love each other. That's the things we talked about the last two weeks, justice and reconciliation, okay? And a people that abide by the covenant and that follow the law of God to love each other, to practice justice and reconciliation, they become a people under a rule, which means they are a kingdom, okay? Now, these are all words that we are very unfamiliar with because we live in a democracy. We've got a president. He's supposed to be the servant of the people. He is not a sovereign, okay? These are all very different to us. And so, again, the reason I'm going into this in detail is to understand the book of Isaiah. We have to put ourselves in that culture, in that time, and understand what he's talking about. Now, what we're going to focus on today is just the covenant piece. What is it to have a covenant, okay? So, what is a covenant? Let's understand the idea of covenant. I think all of us have heard it, we've talked about it before, but we may not know fully how it applies to our life. What I want you to do is is write down whatever strikes you as I'm talking here about what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement that brings about relationship between two parties. That's what it is. And it can be anything uh, from a small relationship to a large relationship. And the reality is, is that a covenant is put in place because the two parties were previously separated. They were apart. They were divided. The word covenant, what it means is to bind what was separated together. Okay? What was separated is now bound together by a covenant. And a covenant is really just a formal agreement. Now, this could be anything. When we uh, talk about uh, politics, we call it a treaty. Uh, We think of marriage. Marriage is a covenant commitment. We talk about long-term friendships. And even something as small as a social contract that we use in day-to-day interaction. Do you guys realize that you use a covenant when you go to the grocery store? You buy goods. You put them on the counter. The checker goes to check them. What if they give you bad service or don't do it quickly? They haven't abided by the agreement that is unstated of the covenant you have with them. Or if you're mean or don't have money, you haven't abided by the covenant, and so then you have to break the relationship. Because what a covenant is, is two people coming together who say, in order for us to be in relationship, there are certain expectations, certain stipulations. 
It's an agreement on the promises of the relationship. Okay? That's what a covenant is. And so we do this all day long. The first covenant in the Bible that you can think of is the covenant between God and man in Genesis. Some people call it the covenant of works. Okay? Uh, But it's just the first covenant. What did he say? He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and conquer it on my behalf. Subdue it. And then he said, tend and protect the garden. And guys, all you got to do is do those things and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He put stipulations down for how to stay in relationship with him. How did it go? We done messed up. (laughs) That's how it went. The first man and woman didn't uphold the contract. But the idea of covenant doesn't stop there. God didn't give up on us. And so this theme of covenants continues throughout Scripture. And so, in order to give us a a good idea of what this means, there's an awesome video that some wonderful people at a a group called The Bible Project have put together on this topic of covenant that I want to share with you. Uh, Two of the people that are involved in it, the the head two people, Tim Mackey is a pastor at Door of Hope. He's also a professor at Western Seminary, where I go. Uh, And then the head of the theological piece of it is Gary Bashirs, who's um, uh, one of my professors and mentors at school. And so I'm super excited uh, to start showing some of these to you because what they do is they give you a glimpse of this idea of covenant in a quick, very easy-to-understand way. Uh, And I'm going to show you a few of these videos as we go through Isaiah, but here's the first one. Let's go ahead and listen to it. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. 
And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. That's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. If you guys are interested in, in watching that again or looking at any of their other, um, they have many, many um, videos. We're using it for both our college uh, ministry, um, young adults ministry, as well as our high school ministry. Um, They have a a bunch of videos that help you read through the Bible to understand it. So feel free to go there. We as a church are supporting them in their work financially. Um, Not with a a ton, but um, uh, with a little bit. And so if you guys feel led to help them with that, um, feel free to donate to uh, their work. So this idea of covenant, why is it important? Well, this is why. God's character is faithful, and he upholds covenant relationship. This is pretty obvious from the video's summary of the topic. We must understand that covenant faithfulness is core to God's plan, God's character. Everything about the Bible and about God is about covenant relationship. For example, if we look at Solomon's statement during his prayer of dedication here in 2 Chronicles 6, 
He's dedicating the finished temple to God, and he notes God's covenant with both David and Israel. Let me read it to you, or you can read it with me. It's Second Chronicles 6.14. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. God has a faithful love for us. The word in the Hebrew, whenever you see that faithful love, is hesed, or we say it hesed. But it means covenant faithful love, okay? And we can go one step further as we look at this idea. That video gives us a great understanding, but I think we need to go one step further to understand how covenants function in the Word and why covenants are important to us as New Testament believers. We need to become familiar with a very particular type of covenant. And so I'm going to walk you through this. And, you know, when I was a little kid, my dad would take us on long drives, okay? Many of you have gone through this before. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And your parents would get out at the most boring spots, and they would go over to those big signboards on the side of the road, and they would say, you need to read this, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. All you younger people, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Does anybody? Okay. And you kind of go, oh, I want to just listen to my music in my day. I want to listen to my Walkman. I know I'm that old, right? Okay. And you'd totally ignore this history and go over here and just wait to get to the beach, right? Okay. Well, don't wait to get to the beach. Read it. Understand the history because it's very important. Okay? This is not just something for geeks and nerds like me. This is core to understanding the Bible. Okay? God uses something throughout the Word that was very, very prominent in that day called a suzerain treaty. Okay? Everybody say suzerain. You're like, I'm never going to use that word again, Hans. No, this is important. Okay? A suzerain treaty. It was a set way of writing a contract. For those of you who might be contract lawyers, right? It is a set way of being in contract with another person. And it was used throughout the ancient Near East. And for the people of Moses' day, this would have been totally understandable to them. It's hard for us to understand it. Here's what a suzerain treaty is. Listen very carefully. It is a sovereign king in a sovereign kingdom that has some control over another kingdom that is internally autonomous or independent. A sovereign king in a sovereign kingdom far away who has power but only exhibits some control in another smaller kingdom where all the people have independent free will in order to live their life. Does this sound familiar? We've been talking a lot about what sovereignty means. To understand sovereignty, you have to understand this treaty. Literally, the way these treaties worked is a king in Babylon would say, I want to take over Israel. And Israel is kind of my enemy right now, but I'm going to insert someone who will be my prince there, who will have some control, but ultimately will have all power. Why? Because... If there was too much rebellion, that king from far away would bring his people, his army, and he would squash the rebellion and establish a full-on kingdom in that place. Does this sound like the plan of the Bible? Our king of kings, lord of lords, highest sovereign will come back one day riding on a white horse with his tens of thousands of his army, his host of heaven, 
because the colony, earth, where he has given autonomous reign or independent reign to the people, is still in rebellion against him. And he will save his colony, his people, at that time. This is the mentality that is in all of the Old Testament. And so it's massive for us to understand. This is why we call God sovereign, but yet understand that he isn't controlling or the cause of everything that occurs in this world. Now, a suzerain treaty had four parts, okay? And keep with me here. These are very important. First, it talks about the history of the relationship. There would literally be a section where it would say, this is what our relationship has been thus far. And it would basically state why there was a need for a covenant. Secondly, it would give the obligations of each party. It would be the promise of the sovereign about how he was going to benevolently reign over the people. But it would also have obligations for them to show their loyalty to that king. Number three, it would have provisions that it would be read in public often in order to remind the people both of the benevolent reign, the history of the relationship, but also the obligations of the party. And lastly, it would speak of consequences of blessing and cursing. Blessing if the treaty was upheld, the covenant was upheld. Cursing if it wasn't. Now think with me, guys. Does this sound like the order of any books that we know. This book that you have in your hand that has 66 internal books in it is literally structured as a suzerain treaty. The entire Old Testament is the history of the relationship between the sovereign, God, in his far-off kingdom, and his people in the colony here. He stated throughout the word the obligations of each party. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and one another as yourself. You shall teach your children all of this. Why? Because those are the obligations of the parties. Provisions to read in public. We kind of do that, right? And the whole point of the Bible is public reading of Scripture. Why? To remind us of the covenant we have chosen to buy into. And lastly, you want blessing and cursing? Go read Revelation, man. Those who continuously practice sin and do not align themselves with my truth, with my law, with my covenant, you will be ushered into separation from me. You will break the treaty and you will no longer be in relationship with me. But those of you who walk in my ways and follow me, pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, lay down your life, you will be blessed. Not in the temporal, not right now, but eternally. Now, this is used throughout the word. You can go find it uh, in many places. Exodus 19 through 23, where we are given the law on behalf of God. It is actually structured intentionally by the author as a suzerain treaty. The entire book of Deuteronomy, that whole section of, of scripture, was to be structured and was written intentionally as a suzerain treaty. The end of Deuteronomy has blessings and cursings for that reason. See, God is the suzerain, the sovereign. It's a word that means sovereign. We don't use it very much anymore. Who provides benevolent reign for the Israelites if they stayed true to their covenant. For the God of the Israelites, our God, the amazing part that was different about how this was usually given was this. And this is amazing, guys. This is so cool. 
the way this was usually instated was that a king from a foreign country would come and destroy the people and conquer them with force. And then he would establish his reign. But our God, he operates off of a different mentality, doesn't he? He doesn't come and squash you down. How did he establish his treaty with the Israelites? He freed them from slavery. He brought justice to them and peace. And he said, I am going to be your God and you will be my people. A covenant faithfulness. Now, many of you are either blown away by this, and I can see by the glazed look in your eyes, or you have checked out. Hear me. We have to understand this. This is the Bible. This is the Bible. I love how one person in one of the commandments put it, or in one of the, not commandments, sorry, one of the commentaries, he put it this way. He said, God's covenant with Israel established not simply an agreement between a sovereign and his subjects, but an intimate relationship based on faithful love. Hesed. Hesed. God established his treaty with us because of his love for us. And we can be assured of this, guys. We can be assured that God is not one who breaks his covenants. He has assured us he will bring salvation for us, and he did in his son, Jesus Christ. And he will bring the treaty to full completion, the covenant to full completion. The problem in Isaiah that we're going to run into is this. This is why it's so important to understand for Isaiah, is that Isaiah was speaking to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and Judah had forsaken their covenant with God. Judah had forsaken their covenant with God. See, God had made a covenant with the Israelites so that they would be his distinct people, his holy nation, bringing justice and love, liberty to the people around them. They were to be this people by being different than those around them, practicing things that we've talked about the last two weeks, justice and reconciliation. Not just talking about it, not just reading it in the word, but practicing it in their daily lives. They were to be a people that would live off of love and service to one another. And in so doing, they would reflect the character of God. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. See, the main two reasons it didn't happen was because, first and foremost, yes, they had their covenant with God, but as we'll see in Isaiah, they were seeking treaties with other kingdoms. See, they had their covenant to God. They would go to the temple and they would worship at the temple and they'd say, we're covenant people with you, God. But then when things got really rough, they'd go, eh, I don't know that I fully buy into this. God hasn't really shown up in the way I want. So, as we'll see in Isaiah, we're going to go make a covenant with Damascus, the enemy of the Most High God. We're going to go make a covenant with uh, Babylon, the Most High enemy, or the, God, the enemy of the Most High God. And see, I find this is so true because remember, Isaiah was written to the people of God, not to the non-believers. And isn't this something that we do as Christians? Yes, God, I'm in covenant faithfulness with you, but if you don't show up in the right way, if you're not making me feel the right way, if life isn't going the right way, I'm going to have to go make a covenant with something else. I know that you're supposed to be the one that I am intimately tied to and connected with and that my value comes from me, but when I'm not feeling it, I'm going to have to go find myself a boyfriend or girlfriend that I can have sex with because that's going to help me. 
That's going to be my idol. That's going to make me feel intimacy. I'm not going to stay true to the covenant I have with you. I'm going to go find my own God to worship. Lord, I know you're my provider, and I know everything comes from you, and I don't have to worry about being generous because you're going to provide for me. But God, if you, if you can't quite provide in the way I want, you can't quite get me that toy I want, I'm going to have to pull back from the covenant and go seek after mammon, the one who will give me money, give me comfort. They were seeking treaties with other kingdoms. Jesus came and he said, you can't serve two masters, guys. You can't have two covenants. You can only have one. You only serve one covenant. Secondly, not only were they seeking treaties with other kingdoms, they picked and chose how they would serve and worship the God of the covenant they were in. What we'll find in Isaiah right from the get-go, right in chapter 1, is they all did the religious things really well. They'd show up at temple. They'd worship when they felt comfortable to do so. They'd give when they felt comfortable to do so. But anything that was hard for them, anything that required sacrifice, the Israelites refused to do because they thought they were the ones that stipulated what the expectations in the covenant were. They viewed God as a vending machine, not as another party with whom they were in covenant with. And so he says to them right in chapter 1, we've already read it a couple weeks ago, your vain offerings, your prayers, your gatherings, your festivals, they sicken me. Why? Because you don't practice justice. You don't practice what you learn when you go to temple. So Isaiah and the prophets were sent to pronounce judgment on Judah for leaving their covenant relationship with God. And we will see that depressive state of those covenants. It is not looking good for the people of Judah. But even in the midst of that heavy judgment, the amazing part about what Isaiah steps in to do is he says, I'm going to speak truth to you of what the current state of your life is. And many of us in this room today, we might need to hear that. We might need to have conviction that we are making multiple covenants with multiple gods by our actions, that we are simply doing the religious traditions as opposed to walking our lifestyle in covenant relationship. But here's the kicker. What Isaiah does is he doesn't come in and just slam them. He gives them hope that even though they're broken and even though they're corrupted, God has provided a different choice, a way out. Even in the midst of that heavy judgment, God provides hope. And this is why. God promised to redeem his covenant with mankind. And he did this through Jesus. God, from the get-go, from Genesis 3, Eve, your offspring that will come from your, your loins, your seed, he will eventually crush, crush the seed and the offspring of Satan, of the enemy, of the father of lies. One example of this is in Isaiah 56. Why don't you turn there with me? Throughout Isaiah, we see both that judgment, that statement of conviction, but we also see this amazing hope. And I think we, as, as true Christians, every Sunday, we should have some measure of conviction in some area of our lives. But we can also take strong hope and encouragement from the fact that we are not doing this alone. Just as that video showed, we are partnering with God through his Holy Spirit to do this. So Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. It's written to two different groups who, in the mind of the Israelites, had no hope of drawing near to God or being part of the Jewish people. It's speaking first of Gentile foreigners 
who if they remained Gentile and didn't become Jews uh, in the covenant, um, would not be able to draw near God. And eunuchs, um, these are people that could not reproduce, they could not procreate. And so in the Jewish culture, because their first and foremost commandment was to procreate and fill the earth and, and reign uh, on God's behalf, they were seen as people that were less than, that were broken. And this statement is given to them in Isaiah 56 that gives them hope. Let's go through just the first two verses here. Thus says the Lord, and that's speaking of Yahweh, Jehovah, as the Jews would say, Adonai, the Lord, the one that came as Jesus, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now we read this and we love this, right? In the English, it's amazing. But let me give you a couple of words in the Hebrew to help you understand how massive this is is of a statement of hope. Who was it that was the person who all the sin is lumped on, who's responsible for the sin of mankind? What was his name? Well, Jesus came and died for it. But who's the one that was in trouble who done bad the first time? Adam, okay? Who's the one that came and was the salvation of mankind? Jesus. And his name in Hebrew is Yeshua, okay? I'm going to read through this again. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. This is literal Hebrew. For soon my Yeshua will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the bar Adam, son of Adam, who holds it tight, holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Did Adam's hand do any evil? Yes, he reached out to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and broke the covenant with God. These two verses right here are speaking directly to Genesis chapter 3 saying, you guys reached out to evil. Adam, it's on you and your children. But I will send my salvation, Yeshua, God saves, and he will come and save you. So he continues, verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. I know from conversations many of you struggle with, Will God ever leave me? Will he forsake me? Will he ever walk away from the covenant? And the answer is no. He will only allow you to walk away from the covenant. He will always stay strong. Let the Lord will surely, uh, will surely separate me from his people. Let him not say that. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, I won't be fruitful. I'm nothing. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. You young adults from Friday night, that should hit you pretty hard there. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Who's he talking about there? Us. 
This was a promise in Isaiah 56 that those of us, the Gentiles, who are far away from God and his people, would be drawn by Yeshua, would be drawn by the salvation that God would send. And the statement of being given a name in our society, we name our kids whatever we want, it doesn't matter, we change our names left and right. In that society, guys, to be given a name meant that you were previously a fatherless child. In our language, it's the word bastard. You had no connection to a family. You were the person that was fatherless, which meant you had no future, no inheritance, no love, no value, and no acceptance. And you know how God feels about that. He says, draw the fatherless to you. Accept them. Give them a new name. Bring them into your family. Give them an inheritance. Give them hope. Give them life. That's why we do what we do as a church. That's why many of you are driven to do what you do as families. God wanted to bring us in and make us his people. And he would do this out of his covenant faithfulness to redeem mankind. And he does this through what the video showed is called a new covenant. Jesus stood before the men uh, and and his disciples uh, in the Last Supper and he said, take this bread and take this cup. This cup is a symbol of my blood that is the new covenant that is shed for you. See, in God giving his son to die as a sacrifice, he literally was saying to us, I am willing to do whatever it takes to promise you that I will stay in relationship with you. A covenant has been set before us today, mission. A covenant has been set before us and before you individually today. The Bible is literally structured like a covenant in the whole narrative of it so that God can present it to you and say, will you sign it? Will you enter into covenant relationship with me? Well, Hans, I thought that grace meant that there were no obligations. That it doesn't matter who I've been or what I've done. That God has a perfect plan for my life. No, this is salvation, guys. That God has stepped up and said, I will graciously offer to you a covenant. There's nothing you've earned for me to come do this to you. In fact, you are my enemy, previously divided from me but I ask of you to enter into a relationship with me. You have been sinful and stepped away from me, the history of our relationship. But I will give you freely of my benevolent love and authority and my rule, and I ask of you certain obligations. Jesus came and they said, what are those obligations? And what did he say in Matthew 22, 37? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love each other. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. What are the obligations of being a Christian? Walk, not talk. Walk, not talk. Will we agree to it? We have a benevolent, loving, so faithful God that has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to rule and reign not only out there, but in here by his Holy Spirit. And so what we look at today as we finish off is this. This is the last point. Is that God's people are reflections of God's covenant faithfulness. God's people are reflections of God's covenant faithfulness.
having done as much marriage counseling as I have, I am amazed at how much this plays into marriage. See, the reason that God designed it where we have marriage first before we have any other form of physical intimacy is that there is a vow, there is a statement that you are a covenant people following in God's covenant promise, reflecting that to the world. And then within that covenant, you have massive, awesome intimacy. And in marriage counseling, I I get two people all the time who have differing expectations. Their obligations that they signed on to, that they never spoke out loud, that they have in their head, are not matching up with what the other person believes their expectations are. Okay? Uh, You will always do the laundry. You will always do the laundry. What do we have? Marriage counseling. Okay? (laughs) Right? We will have sex every night. We will have sex once a week. What do you have? Marriage counseling. Okay? Because they're never spoken, because they're never discussed, people break the covenant. And they don't mean to. It's that the other person isn't on the same covenant as they are. And so part of what I'm saying today is this. God wants you to get on the same page as him as to what the covenant looks like. Many of us, we totally would say, oh, I'm all in for God's covenant. We haven't even read the thing. It's like all the legislators who signed off on Obamacare, right? A thousand pages? You've got to be kidding me. I guess I'll just sign up, right? You get handed this Bible when you're a new believer and you're like, what? I guess I'm in, right? No, guys, that's the whole point of understanding this is we have to know what we sign up for. That's why Jesus said, count the cost. Not, it's easy, do whatever you want. God has a perfect plan for your life. He'll deliver on every promise uh, that you think he has. No. Count the cost cost of the covenant. And see, God's people are a reflection of God's covenant because we take that covenant and we put it into play in our lives. We know that his law, his kingdom operates not under a bunch of of Semitic laws that we will actually cover next time and why we don't operate under those individual laws, but we operate under the law of love. And we make it a priority to be part of his people and to understand his covenant. Well, Hans, I, I'm a new believer. This is all new for me. And maybe you're one of those people that has your, you know, your, your mind made up and you think that I'm being legalistic or too harsh here. And this is different than what you've heard about the gospel. Guys, this is not different than the Bible. And I would ask you to think about this. What is it that he's asking us to do? That video covers it perfectly. That scene where Jesus grabs the hand and he walks all the people out of the world and they start to change color. And it says this in that movie, in that video. Jesus, by his spirit, is making us partners who are becoming, we haven't arrived, we haven't become perfect, but are becoming more and more faithful to redeem the creation and satisfy the covenant with God. It's a process. Don't hear me today as going, here's the covenant, sign up or die, right? No, that's not not God's heart. His heart is, is read it, agree to it, Sign off on it. Start walking in it. And little by little, you will grow in an understanding of what it is to be a covenant people, reflecting God's covenant to the world. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. And look at what it says at the end there. Actually, let's read, it, read a little bit more than just the end. Isaiah 59, uh, starting in verse 14. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 14.
God through Isaiah says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, you're fighting against the trend of society. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered uh, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. That's speaking of Jesus. And his righteousness upheld him. Notice the words here. Those of you that love the book of Ephesians, this is going to make sense. He, Jesus, put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay Guys, never, whenever you hear that, oh, God is not a God of works. No, he absolutely is a God of works. Look at what it says right there. Everybody read it with me. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Now, I don't have time, but I can take you to Revelation where it says all people, the books, the book of life and the book of deeds will be opened. And he will say, how did you use the life I gave you? Did you squander it or did you use it? as my people underneath my covenant. It says, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer, Jesus, praise God, will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from their transgressions. That's speaking of repentance turning from what you know and believe to follow Jesus, declares the Lord. Verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. Okay, this is Old Testament language, but it's speaking of us. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. There's the Holy Spirit. And my words that I've put in your mouth. There's the word of God that we study every week. Shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Paul then picks up this same idea from verse 17, and he says to the church, put on that helmet, put on that breastplate. He uses the exact same language, and he finishes off the section in Ephesians 6.20. You can go read it on your own. In Ephesians 6.20, he says, now pray for me that I will have the energy and the power to go proclaim the word of God, that the words of God will come from my mouth. What is he saying? He's saying covenant God is asking his covenant people to fulfill their covenant obligation of covenant faithfulness to show God's character to the world. That's our obligation. It's simply to reflect the love of Jesus Christ to the world. Well, how do we do that, Hans? I'm going to give you a couple of bullet points here and then we'll be done. And this is step-by-step, I think there are four of them, things that you need to do in your life and you can take each of these principles and then you, with the Holy Spirit, can go home today. You can talk about it as a family. You can sit down as an individual and pray through it and meditate on it as to how you take these principles and implement them into your personal life. The first one is, is that you have to, you have to prioritize the covenant. We are to be those that don't wander aimlessly through our lives, having our focus and our schedules distracted by the temporal things around us. We are to live each day allied with the Father of truth. 
and with his kingdom in the war against the father of lies. See, the interesting thing about a covenant was that it didn't guarantee you peace. All a covenant guarantees, and it definitely didn't guarantee you comfort. All a covenant guarantees is who you're allied with once the war breaks out. That's it. We think that the covenant of God should bring us immediate peace and immediate comfort. Talk to the Israelites. A covenant does not guarantee you comfort or peace. It guarantees you that when you're standing face to face with the enemy, the father of lies, Jesus shows up every time, every day, and he fights with you. Prioritize the covenant. Make your life about the covenant. Number two, learn the words of the covenant, the words of God, and live it. I'm going to give you guys a a, a miraculous understanding of how hard-headed and sometimes just plain old dumb I am. It took me 15 years before one day it dawned on me. You know, Jesus would never have said certain commandments if I'm not supposed to do them. I mean, do you parents, do you go, hey, go clean up your room. Oh, you're so cute rebelling and not doing what I say. That's great. I just issue commands in my home because I like to hear myself talk. Any parents do that in here? Raise your hand. Yeah? No. Okay. No, he says commands because it says that they're not hard to obey. That's what 1 John says. In fact, we enjoy following his commands. Why? Because we are his people underneath his sovereignty and reign. See, we're to be those that pursue and learn everything about this covenant as much as we can. I guarantee you that if someone put a contract in front of you that said, you need to read this because if you do it wrong, you're going to die, you'd probably read it. How many of you have bought houses and not really read the contract as they're flipping through the pages of the mortgage broker? Why? Well, because we live in a society that, uh, well, I'll just eventually, you know, I'll just do a short sale. I'll just, you know, I'll default on my debt, right? Because covenant is nothing in our society. It's no big deal. I'll just default on it. Well, if they said at the end of the covenant for your mortgage, and if you do this, we will cut your head off. Slow down. We're going to be here a few days. I'm going to, the house, I'm good so far right? I mean, that's what we would do with that covenant contract. But see, we think that about God. We think, well, God, you you know, I'll just short sale my salvation. You know, if I live for myself and I do my own thing, I'll get to heaven. You'll, You'll forgive me. I'm a generally good person. I've generally said that I'm a Christian. No, that's not how it works, guys. There is no such thing as short sales for salvation. We have to understand our obligations. We need to read the contract. Number three, We need to live personally in covenantal relationships. We can't be a people that's like the rest of the world around us, that has shallow relationships that come and go as we please. When somebody annoys us, we start to distance. We don't actually work it out. We don't go to them in vulnerability. We don't talk through conflict. We just slowly but surely increase our distance. We are to be people that live in hesed, loyal, faithful love, so that the world can see the love of Christ shine through us to one another. See, we are to be a people that is far different than our society. We are not to be a people that forgive and forget, shove it under the rug, put on a smile, and pretend we like one another at church. We are to be people that go up to one another and say, you have sinned against me and harmed me, and I want conflict resolution so that we can be in covenant together. That was last week's discussion of reconciliation. 
John Winthrop, a Puritan, the Puritan governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, before setting foot in New England, said this. He explained to the men on his ship, his shipmates, what it meant to be in covenant with each other before they embarked on truly a war to bring the gospel to the United States. Now, do I agree with everything the Puritans did? No, okay? But listen to what he said. This is amazing. He said to his shipmates, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must delight in each other. Make others' conditions our own. Rejoice together. Mourn together. Labor and suffer together. Always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work. Who wants that? Guys, we're so used to the megachurch model where we come and go and we treat it as if it's a barbershop. If it annoys us, we go to a different one. And we jump from church to church depending upon the schedule of their worship services. I like the music here and I like the music there and I like the teaching there and they have a good worship service and I'll just go. No, guys, that's not how you live in a covenant relationship with the people around you. Consumer Christianity is not covenant relationship. Covenant relationship is covenant relationship. We are to be people that live in covenant relationship. And lastly, we have to realize that we do all this to proclaim Yeshua, salvation, with our life. By our very life, the experience people have when they're in our circle of influence, we proclaim salvation and that we follow a covenant God. As we worship today, I want us to take stock of whether we have truly entered into a covenant of faithfulness, not just as individuals, but as a community of faith. Have we entered into a covenant of faithfulness with Jesus and his people? Are we playing around with the covenant like the people of Judah did? I want us to think about this because as we go to the table of communion and take the bread and take the cup, realize that in that moment you are renewing your vow with God according to his covenant much the way couples do in their wedding day, where they vow to one another with their words that they will act in their life according to the covenant vow. And we are in that moment saying we will be faithful to Jesus and obey the expectations of our relationship with him because he is so faithful to us. That has to be the starting place, his faithfulness to us that never leaves, his chesed. But we must understand that we are then obligated to respond to that. Let's be a people today that take seriously our covenant with God and with one another as we worship and as we leave this place. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today.